There's war going on in this world. A war on freedom. He's acting outside of his authority by saying you can't put something that you want in your own body. That's your own personal choice and can't nobody take that from you, you know? You're one of these taxpayers and these are all your documents and this is how we're going to rob you. It's fucked up, man. It's more war, it's more spending, it's more debt, and it's less freedom. We don't do that here. Some people think that you can't be radical and pragmatic. This is what we need is a pragmatic radicalism, not moderation. Hardcore radicalism, but smart shit. It's not sitting in a fucking basement with a bunch of fucking nerds. You don't know shit, and that's the thing. You have to talk to people who think differently than you. Like his focus is not how horrible the government is, it's how wonderful liberty and freedom are. That's what drives us. People are coming together more and more and more and more as the government has been failing us. We're just getting started. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Fight for Liberty show. Uh, we have a really awesome show for you guys today. I have a guest coming all the way from across the pond. But before we get into that, I got to tell you guys a little bit about our sponsors. Some of them you should already know about. Nug of Knowledge uh, is my personal favorite because we sell cannabis. And so if you want to get some premium quality uh, legal cannabis in all 50 states across the country, uh, go to nugofknowledge.com. You can find flour there. You can find vapes, edibles, all sorts of different things. We have CBD, CBG, and the Delta 8 uh, THC products. So go on over to nugofknowledge.com. Use promo code F4L and you will get 10% off your first purchase. And you'll also help out both the channel and the network and other libertarians as well. And so definitely go do that. Uh, my other great friend, uh, Tom Queter, uh, is running for New York State Senate this year. He ran last year. He's running again this coming year. And uh, we're really excited about the work that he did uh, in his first race. And he's only building on that momentum. So if you want to find out more about Tom Queter, how you can get involved or how you can donate, uh, you can go to tomfor52.com. Uh, that link is also in the description if you're on YouTube or Facebook, as well as a donate link. Um, there's also a link to Nug of Knowledge in the description. So go check all of that stuff out. Um, help us out. We could use it. Uh, but today's guest uh, is the founder of the Valhalla Network and a partner of Professor uh, Richard Werner. Ver Werner. I'm, I knew I was going to mess that up, even though I know how to pronounce that. Um, Mr. Oliver Studd, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, I, I, I'm so mad at myself because like, I, I had to correct uh, Stacia the first time she said that word out loud because I'm like, I know German and like I know better than that. And then I knew I, knew I was going to fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> no problem um, it's me that you messed up so <laughs> that's true i mean oliver is a lot easier to pronounce <laughs> uh so i usually like to start off with s some form of a political testimony question so i'm curious uh when did you realize that the world was going to shit and we needed projects like valhalla network and other things that you're working on to kind of steer us back in the right direction uh, so, well, while I was at university doing my master's, so Richard was my um, main professor and my supervisor for my dissertation. Um, so a lot of what I was learning was, you know, about credit creation theory. Um, I watched Prince of the Yen documentary on YouTube, uh, which is all about Richard's book um, and about how basically the Bank of Japan orchestrated the Japanese recession of the 90s. 
and to cause, you know, to bring about structural change. And they could have stopped it at any point. In fact, Richard um, multiple times told them how to and suggested how to. Um, and that's when he invented QE, quantitative easing. And um, mm. they ignored it because they wanted to further their power and their own sort of agenda, causing mass suicides and depression. Mm -hmm. um, so I learned about that during my master's. So I was aware then that things needed to be different. Um, big banks had too much power. Central banks had way too much power. Um, and effectively, anything you do when you centralize the power, you, you bring about corruption and um, you're likely to get uh, something that isn't for the common good. Um, sure that. You know, I personally, I, I've worked for HSBC myself for a couple of years um, to get a good sort of founding in banking. Um, I enjoyed my time there. Um, it was a good bank to work for as an employee, but um, it wasn't focused on small businesses at all, which is the backbone of the economy. And, um, you know, big banks aren't. They, they tend to ignore small, small businesses. It's, you know, empirically proven. Um, in fact, we do surveys with small businesses and they tell us the same thing as well. And um, it's just not, you know, you don't get as much um, enjoyment and personal satisfaction working for a big bank as you do working for small, you know, a small bank, small businesses, trying to do mm -hmm. something for the public good. Um, so after a couple of years working with HSBC, I then um, joined Richard, joined forces with Richard at Local First. I'm a director at Local First Community Interest Company um, in Winchester and working on our first community bank. And going through the process with him and, and also trying to reach out to other councils in other counties and trying to sort of push this idea of community banking something that is very successful in Germany and was very successful in, in the UK 150 years ago mm -hmm. and trying to push this and, and promote it and get the buy-in from councils. It's very time consuming and you have to do it multiple times. You get multiple stakeholders. And I thought, well, why don't we just do this on a much larger scale where there's not as much red tape and we can have much more of a positive impact across the world and not just in the UK. And that's where the idea of really effectively of Valhalla came about trying to do something that's more public good and focused on small businesses. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's crazy how most people understand the concept that you just described of, uh, you know, small business better uh, versus large centralized business. Like everybody understands that like your your corner store is going to have or your local grocery store is going to have uh, better products and and better treatment of their employees and usually even sometimes better prices than say like a, a Walmart or something like that. Most people get that. And then when they start talking about banks, all of that goes out the window and they're like, there's other banks besides Chase and HSBC and Bank of America. I thought those were the only ones. <laughs> and, and we just don't try to go for that smaller route the way that a lot of people do in other ways. Well, in the UK, for example, uh, the big banks, the sort of five main high street banks, take up 90% of the UK banking market. They take 90% of the UK deposits, uh, bank deposits. So it's not so much that people are unaware that others are available, but it's also that they're not available because these big banks have been buying up the small banks, uh, merging with them, acquiring them, and swallowing them up to ensure that we don't have a decentralized banking structure that we had 150 years ago in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. And this centralization has been happening since then and there's been nothing to stop it there's no protection there um which is what we bought in for for our community bank where it can't be sold it can never be acquired by a big bank uh, because we've got a certain governance framework in place mm. um and now that these are starting to sort of come about then marketing it and making sure you really have a buy-in from the local trade associations is really important so that businesses know that we're there to help them and focused on them but at the moment it just isn't they aren't available in the UK and we need to do more work reaching out to councils and, um, you know, promoting this idea and showing that 
sustainably and you know 10 20 years time this has much better impact and you know a great impact on tax great impact on small business in the area, employment and um general economic growth in the local area than not doing it and just sticking with the big banks which mostly care about profits and mostly mm-hmm. care about um siphoning Milani out of the uk well sending it to london to the city of london and then in some cases overseas uh, to where the, uh, the shareholders are mm-hmm. and not benefiting the local area at all so tell me a little bit about the that governance system that you mentioned uh, for Community First that allows it to kind of have that protection from getting bought out. Yeah, sure. So we've brought in the first ever governance framework for a community bank that, like I said, stops it, prevents it ever from being sold to a big bank, ever from being uh, merged, ever from being swallowed up. Um, the reason for this is because if you have shareholders involved, obviously they're going to want to sell if a good price is put on the table. And if a small community bank comes along, that's not so much threatening the big banks, but obviously if there's many of them, then it starts threatening the big banks. Um, in, in, in the case of people are going to be depositing more money with the small community banks, obviously the big businesses that they always want is still there because the community banks don't focus on them. Um, but these Big banks look at the community banks that are coming along and saying, well, they're doing very well. They're very successful. However, we want to dominate this market and we really only want to be the ones in it. So we want to buy them. A shareholder will see a very attractive offer on the table. The big banks have a lot of money, um, way over a fair market price, and they will sell. You know, why wouldn't you? If, if you know, if it's there, you, yeah. you know, you're being offered, it's very difficult to not. And especially when you're dealing with councils, publicly owned banks or government owned ba- uh, banks, where you've got an interest of public money on the table and you have to consider what is in the best interest of public money at this time. And if it's a very attractive offer, it's very difficult for Section 151 officers, those in charge of um, ensuring you know, public, um, good use of public funds, to not decide to sell their shares. So therefore, this framework we brought in is said, right, 50% of a community bank in terms of voting power is always with a charity foundation. And that charity foundation can never vote to um, sell. It can never vote to sell any of its shares, um, meaning no big bank will want to even try to purchase it because it can never get um, the controlling power of, the, of hmm. the community bank. It can never change what the ethos of it is, how it operates. It can never just swallow it up. Um, and that 50% model also means that the dividends that the bank makes, the profits, because although it's operating on a not-for-profit basis, um, the banks themselves are still profitable. And the profits that are generated, 50% of those are then also sent to the charity foundation that then uses it on behalf of the bank to fund local sport initiatives, you know, societies, clubs, charity, social programs are in the area. So you're not only benefiting the economy by lending to small businesses, but any profit on, you know, in an ethical way, but any mm-hmm. profits you do end up making, a portion of those are then used to then um, regenerate, regenerate the local area. So yeah, that's how we protect the, the small banks from ever being taken over. That's awesome. Uh, I, I also really love the the fact that it's it's tied into that that charity and and uh, you know just doing good things for the community. Uh, it's not just built around the the bank itself being good for the community, but it's it's actively built in a way that that spreads that goodness. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, while I've been at Local First, actually, and I've been talking to Richard, there's you know there's a lot we want to do, and only limited amount of time we can we can you know do it in. Um, and I've been obviously you're aware I've been talking um, to our friends about this as well, trying to trying to move this along. But we want to set up financial education as well, and which means the, the community banks will engage with local schools 
um, sort of engaging with the young adult um, age group there and trying to teach them about financial education, pointing them into resources available through the local FIRST portal, which teaches them about important things that they need to learn that they don't learn in school, like budgeting, mortgages, payday loans, risks of them, etc. But also if you form that relationship with the school and the young adults there, those young adults, which are going to go on and eventually start up small businesses in the area, who are they most likely going to then approach in the first place to bank with? It's going to be that community bank, which you've right. had that relationship with, and you know that it's there for you. Um, so that's something else we want to start up as well in, in the sort of longer term um, once once our workload decreases slightly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's something that's really important because I know the majority of my generation is quite clueless on most financial everything. Uh, I'm very lucky. I was raised by uh, my mom has has a degree in accounting and was a little obnoxious, in my personal opinion, on like, like, I, I knew how to balance a checkbook in like third grade, and actually like had my own checkbook, like register, even though I didn't have checks or a checking account, like I, I was budgeting and like taking track of the $4 that I spent on candy at the dollar store and this and that and like balancing a checkbook basically uh as like an elementary school kid so i i'm definitely in the minority of my generation when i like actually kind of know this stuff and i'm still bad at it a lot of times like my budget has been all over the place especially uh doing a lot of volunteer work lately uh mm -hmm. you know income is kind of hit or miss over the last two years and uh so even even me getting like that indoctrination and brainwashing into like financial stability i still didn't catch it all and so i feel very very sad sad for the the kids who didn't yeah. get any of that uh, yeah, we i really won't even talk about my mom's financial literacy <laughs> <laughs> uh i really like that what you were talking about with the schools though because um uh, actually when i was a, a junior in high school my mom went back to work and uh for for a credit union and they, a couple of years ago, actually opened a branch inside of the local high school. Um, <laughs> and so there's like this, it, it was basically like a, a portion of the cafeteria and it was open like during all of the lunch periods and it was run by students. Um, there was always like one adult there at all times, but there was like always two students in there, like as the tellers, all the kids in the high school uh, got like, fee free and like uh like completely free accounts and uh like it was awesome and like my mom would go there uh like once a week or twice a week to be the adult in the mm. in that branch and then she would go there every once in a while to like teach a little class or something like that about financial literacy and like they saw a huge membership increase uh, after that because the kids would go and tell their parents and then the parents would become members. And it was one of the best programs that they did as a credit union, um, which is like the closest thing that we have in the U.S. to breaking up the big the big bank monopolies is is like local credit unions. Uh, and even those are still most often corrupted and <laughs> well, the U.S. is doing much better than the U.K., I think, in terms of concentration. But, yeah, um, improvements mm -hmm. always be made um, for sure and and it's difficult you know you you are sometimes battling the regulators on it uh because they're regulating the banks and some of their regulations are really more directed towards the big banks and their fees etc and if mm -hmm. you're a smaller bank and it's, it's a little bit you know it's sometimes a bit of a struggle to either afford the fees or to go through the regulatory process which is quite you know obviously rigorous and everything um yeah. but for a small bank it's a bit it's a bit tougher mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it's not a bad idea either to potentially bring in in the UK uh, once we set that up. But it's fun. The, 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 the most fun part will be in about four or five years um, once the, the charity foundation starts receiving those dividends that can then allocate them towards social sport clubs, etc. Because mm -hmm. what the plan isn't, isn't just, okay, say, well, here's a check to a big charity. There you go. We're not going to do that. It's going to be much more um, community banks are aware of clubs in the areas, etc. And the trustees will be looking at small um, small local clubs or societies or anything like that, which it can see where the money is going to be used. And it's actually going to impact um, the local area, not just pay salaries to a big mm -hmm. charity, you know, deputy head or head of the charity, directors, right. etc. Yeah, I thought it was really funny. You mentioned uh, in that in that meeting a uh, week ago or so uh, that you, you were saying, like, we're going to do this in Europe and then maybe like Africa and, and Asia. And then and then maybe we'll get to the U.S. because the regulations are so ridiculous that we just <laughs> it's like <laughs> the bottom of the totem pole for right now. And I don't yeah. blame you for that. <laughs> well, we'll have to have people on board, which uh, which is much more aware of the, the U.S. regulations uh, than I am uh, for sure as they're sometimes difficult to navigate. Um, but yeah. <laughs> they are a headache for sure. Um, but that's what, you know, that's for aiming for the stars. Aim for the stars, hit the moon. If we aim to, you know, set these community banks up across the world, then maybe we can at least do it in one continent or two. Um, we'll see how we go. Um, but it's, you know, it's exponential growth because as you start up, you can hire more people and just keep starting up more and more banks and engaging in local areas. Um, and you can copy and paste the model in a lot of times. Right. And so you've you've mentioned uh, that you're working with like local councils uh, to start these up, right? Uh, yeah. Is, and that's that's like a, a local government government system, right? Which I know yeah. a, a lot of my viewers are gonna like be like oh, government owned bank. Uh, that's worse. Um, <laughs> but a I'll say just because I do know a little bit about the UK's structure versus ours, that government system is significantly less corrupted than say like the the providence or or like national governments or even like our local governments here because even on a county level in the u.s it's entirely corrupt and bs and no, no one even trusts that level of government um at least none of the people that would be watching this show uh <laughs> but so tell me a little bit about like that process of working with the the councils and how you're you're able to get them going on this yeah, so generally what we found is that most councils are receptive to it, especially the one we've just started working with. Um, you know, they're, they're very supportive of what we're trying to do. Um, some of them are involved in small businesses themselves. Um, but it is funny when you start speaking to these small businesses and you mention the council at all, some of them do, you know, get back a little bit like, oh, if the council's involved, then it sounds a bit, it can't be good, um, mm -hmm. you know, or anything like that. A lot of, you know, you still have distrust there. But I genuinely think what the council is trying to do is a good thing. But the, the difference between a normal business being owned by a council or the government than a bank being owned is that the ownership um, and the actual shareholder, they don't have as much power as a normal business because the regulators need to know who's actually in charge of a bank, who's going to be making the decisions. And if it's not the people who are the SMFs, the senior management functions who they've interviewed, then you're not going to get a bank license. So the, the framework has to be built there and the governance framework and the um, you know reserved matters uh, between the different boards and um, they have to be there in a way that regulators can see that um, it's going to be run in a way that the bankers are going to, you know, they, they decide how it's going to be run based on the underlying principles and the ethos, but you can't have someone come in and say, no, we're going to ruin everything. Now, of course, they can pop it down because an owner can just decide, you know, oh, we need to um, 
we're going to pull some money out or we need to withdraw some money. But it still has to be in a way where it's not going to damage the local economy. So it's very different to a normal business. Um, mm -hmm. So it really, if a, if a government is getting involved in it and, and putting up the equity for this small community bank, as long as the ethos is right and what the small, uh, what the ba small bank is trying to do and people can see that, then it doesn't matter who, who really is actually the owner. Mm. Um, and in, in fact, anyone who's owning it is doing a good job because they're the one who's putting up that important equity to get it started and then, right. um, you know, helping the local area. Yeah. And I, I feel like if if my local uh, even even with the distrust that I have for my county uh, executives, if they said that they were going to try to do something like this, that would earn them a lot of credit in my mind. Like they're I feel like if you're part of the like super evil corrupt part of government, you're probably not really going to be on board with something yeah. like this. And it kind of, they should weed themselves out. Yeah, that's true. And um, they shouldn't be wanting to do that if they're, if they're not in it for the public good. Um, but no, we do, we generally found that it's, it's more, um, I guess with councils, it's more visibility, whether or not they're aware of what we're doing um, and trying to do and, and how it impacts the local economy and they can see it. But there's a lot of red tape, obviously. It's time consuming to go through the councils and have to go through the process. But once we start engaging with them, you know, most of the time we find that there's very positive engagement with, they're very interested in what we're trying to do. And they're happy to give us the time of day to give it a try, at least, you know, talk further with them. Um, which for a council, you know, getting that conversation going and actually having them not just say no, is really big step um, and, and takes quite a lot. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, tell me, tell me a little bit more about uh, Valhalla specifically and how, and how you switched over uh, to that and what you guys are doing there. Yeah, of course. So, um, so, you know, someone said to me the other day, what is crypto? Or, you know, they didn't think what we were doing is exactly crypto. And I just sort of think, well, what is it then? Like for me, it's trying to decentralize something, trying to do something that's more for the more transparent, more open, more public good. And but the key part is decentralizing control, um, especially in the DAO. That's, to me, what we're trying to do, and if that isn't crypto, then I apologize because that's what we're trying <laughs> to do. Um, but effectively, we're going to democratize finance uh, through Valhalla Network by owning and establishing these banks, these community banks, um, under the DAO. These, like I said, they're not for profit, but they're still profitable. So these cash flow, the real world cash flow that comes through and flows to the DAO, the governance token holders will then be able to vote on how those funds are used. Um, is it going to be airdrops? Is it going to be reinvested? Is it going to be scholarship opportunities started up, a sort of university style structure started up? Um, also, where are we going to try and then target next for community banks, whether or not members want to get involved and say, look, I want one in my area. I'm going to do a load of work on this. Here's the initial sort of workload that you need done. And they can earn uh, for doing that. And they can actually get involved. <clears throat> um, so that's, that's what we're effectively doing is we're saying, right, we know that decentralizing banking is really vital. We know that these small banks help economies and help small businesses. Um, so now let's not only decentralize banking on a larger scale, but let's democratize the actual ownership structure as well. So the average person from any country can be a governance holder and be, um, you know, access those very attractive central bank credit lines that normally the average person can't access those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and by being a governance holder, you, you have access to them and you have some say in what happens to the profits that come into the DAO entity. That's awesome. I really love the part that you mentioned there about um, like putting in the work and then getting to earn some of the coin, because I feel like there there are very few ways that people can earn 
an income of any kind while trying to do these kinds of things. You know, if they're if you're going to your your town board meetings to try to argue for something good, it very rarely ends up in a paycheck of any kind. Uh, so this is cool that, you know, you also have a little bit of a financial incentive to go out and, and be that person that makes the first move. Yeah. So, you know, that won't be what the DAO is built on so much. We don't mm -hmm. need the community to do it because effectively once we've got, once we issue tokens, we've got money there to set up a bank, <coughs> sorry, to set up an, um, a community bank. Mm -hmm. The the DAO will be then tasked with um, dealing with the external companies and consultants to bring about the start of that bank, to bring it into fruition. Gotcha. We're experienced doing that. You know, Richard and I are experienced at doing that. We do it in the UK. Um, and we have partner companies already that we work with, which we have very good relationships with, which can give us informal advice and also um, help with setting up certain like IT, for example. Um, so we don't need people to do it. It's just another thing. If they want to do it, if they say, look, I really want one in my area. Um, so I'm going to do all the work, like the feasibility study, if you like, of saying, is one needed here? And um, what's the market like here? We, will, we can provide a template of what we need before we can even approach, you know, the regulators in that area and start going through the process because we need to make sure that it's not going to be a waste of our time and the DAO's resources. Um, and then people can do that work. Then the governance token holders can vote on it, whether or not that, you know, they can review it themselves and vote on whether or not to even submit it to the external consultants who will then review it. Um, and if it then passes and we go through and the DAO says, you know, the governance token holders say, yeah, we want it to go through. Uh, we want the DAO to set up a bank in that area based on that feasibility study that someone's put in. And then the bank starts up, you know, the person who's done all that work will then earn either tokens or, you know, we, we haven't, this is still not fleshed out yet. Um, this is still way in the future. And it's just like a light bulb idea that we had <laughs> a few months ago, but it's still not, um, you know, decide on exactly how they'll get rewards, but they will get some sort of reward for doing that work. Um, but that's like extra. It's extra stuff that we're thinking for governance token holders. And we're still fleshing out tokenomics and everything at the moment. You know, it's version 0.8 that we're on on the white paper, still very early days. Um, and, you know, if anyone has any feedback on it, you know, we're always open open uh, to suggestions and stuff. Um, but yeah, There is a link to that in the description, guys, uh, both to the, the Valhalla site and also the white paper that he just mentioned. If you want to read it, um, that's, that's in the description. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Richard, he's, you know, he's the figurehead for this. He's the sort of project chair, if you like, uh, Professor Werner. Um, he's going to be heavily involved on the bank side as well, obviously, um, of setting up these banks and making sure overseeing effectively the executive team, like, a normal, like if you like, the senior contributors of the DAO, making sure that we're bringing about in the right way, we're building it so that it has longevity and sustainability so that when the governance token holders come in and, and say, right, we're going to run it as, as the token holders, that it's all set up in a way to do that. Richard is the ultimate overseer, but it's myself. And then I have a fantastic group of people I'm working with um, who know their stuff. They have a lot of experience, um, especially a couple of them, um, they have a lot of experience in DAOs and in, in sort of the IT space anyway, and in the DLT space as well. One of them has been a CFO on another project. Um, the other one has been in DAOs for about four or five years, which makes him sort of one of the most wow. experienced in the industry. So we have these fantastic guys on the team, which I have full confidence in that they're going to be able to bring a tech solution, which, you know, I'm not attacking myself. I'm still <laughs> learning it. I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm a banker. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've got absolute faith in these guys that they can bring that into fruition and build this so that it has longevity. That's awesome. So how did you go from a student of of Professor Werner to now like a partner that's working on this all this awesome stuff with him? 
Yeah, so I was, funnily enough, I was the only British student in the uh, class that Richard was teaching. Um, and I asked him a lot of questions. I was always, I was always challenging him um, on his theory, making sure, you know, is this guy just talking rubbish or does he actually understand it? Um, you know, what about in this situation? Does your theory hold up? Um, is that actually accurate? You know, and I was doing a lot of background reading at the time. So I, I had a lot of fun there in that, um, in that course, got to into Richard, sort of explained about how, you know, Profit Research Centre, which Richard set up many years ago as well to provide financial advice. We've now decided to set that up and we're in the process of setting that up as well to provide retail affordable financial advice. Um, so there's loads of things I'm involved with with Richard now. Um, but yeah, we just got talking and we decided that, you know, at some point in the future, it'd be good to work um, closely together, try to do this sort of public good. And, you know, Richard and I have a lot of trust in each other. Um, he's a very close friend of mine. So you know, I was discussing this with another gentleman as well earlier in the year. Um, and I spoke to Richard and said, look, this is the idea. What do you think? And he was very much like, look, go, yeah, happy. Sounds good. <laughs> um, sounds good. Don't really understand it yet. You know, he wasn't 100% in the, the blockchain space as well. Um, but yeah, let's let's continue on it. Sounds great. White paper come through. Richard's been heavily involved in writing that, certain sections of the white paper as well. He's been joining team calls, um, actively contributing, and he's aware of now of how exactly it's going to work. Um, and, you know, it's very exciting. So that's how we sort of moved into Valhalla. <laughs> that's that's awesome i i feel like um what, one of the things that i try to talk about a lot on this show is is kind of how people go from the i'd really like to solve this problem to actually solving the problem because so many people uh you know including myself uh just sit around and uh oh this is awful the this company is has really bad business practices i wish there was another company that would compete with them i wish that there was this or that i wish somebody better would run for office mm. but we all just kind of you know no one really wants to rock the boat we all just want to kind of stick in it with our lives and and you know do the thing and Get, get a normal job and, and buy a house and, you know, white picket fence and everything. Uh, and a lot of times doing something like this challenges that original like mindset of life uh, and makes you kind of shift your priorities. And mm. uh, it's always it's always interesting to me to to hear how that ha process goes through. Well, you know, financial stability, where's the fun in that, hey? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, Richard has been challenging challenging the, the main structure, you know, the central planners for many years. Um, you know, he's had a hard time at it. You know, these people don't like being challenged a lot of the time. Um, and he's been a sort of prominent figurehead of it, of trying to do community banking in the UK. He's been working on um, the community bank framework and the governance framework for, and it can't be taken over for many years um, and making sure the regulators approve it. And, you know, and that's been a challenge, but now, you know, they're happy with the framework that we've built. Um, so Richard has been sort of, really challenging it and, and pushing it and deciding, look, he's been calling out CDCs for a long time. That's central bank digital currencies. Uh, a few years ago, he was saying that they're going to be coming around. Um, they're going to create a Soviet-style banking system, which they are, and we need to stand up against them. You know, the big banks need to stand up against them as well because they're a threat to the big banks. You know, this is one of the sort of biggest threats to our to our time, along with all the, you know, tyranny that's happening across the world um, and, and restrictions are in place. But the actual central planners and what they're doing with CBDCs and how that will be linked to, for example, maybe your health pass. So, you know, if you haven't been jabbed, you can't access your currencies in your account, which will sit at the central bank, something like that. That is extremely scary. Um, and, you know, he's been talking about that for a few years. It's now coming around more. It's more obvious that they're trying to do it in a few years' time. So it's really important now more than ever that we need to decentralize the banking system as much as possible, make more people aware of what's happening. Because 
you can't have a Soviet-style banking system that works for the economy. You just can't because it means you've got one bank um, with all the deposits. That one bank can't do the job of lending out to small businesses. It can't even do the job of lending out to big businesses because you need to have people on the ground getting to know these businesses, um, trusting mm. them. They trust the bank that they work with and you know, knowing, okay, they're going through a tough time at the moment. We can understand why. We can give them flexible repayment schedules. That's what community banks do. They're there for the community. Mm -hmm. um so yeah rich has been doing that for a long time and you know i'm quite young still you know i'm in my 20s i'm i don't need to worry too much yet if you know if things go wrong or something I've, i can fall back and then do something later in life it's better now when i'm younger to take the risk and say i don't want a salary for the rest of my life i don't want to you know just sit in a comfortable job um mm -hmm. because that doesn't have a good impact on on society and it's not fun <laughs> right um, it's really isn't and I don't know, you know, going to protest and everything, that's all well and fun as well, enjoyable. But this is really, if we can do this right, which I think we can, um, I know the banking guys can do it right. Um, you know, I'm not trying to be big-headed. I know I'm on the banking side, but, you know, Richard, he knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for many years. So he knows mm -hmm. exactly how to orchestrate this, how to build the banks out, um, how to do the phase one and then phase two. And I've got absolute faith in the tech guys as well. So there's no reason we can't do this. And when we do it, it's going to revolutionize the banking system and it will really um, put more, you know, give more power to the people who are behind it, supporting it um, and real make it, you know, make a real change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I, I couldn't agree more with the, like the twenties are the best, the best time to do this. Uh, I remember I quit my job at 2021 um, to run for office and then since then i've been working in politics and, and traveling and and like working on various either nonprofits or campaigns and when i when i first quit my job i, mean, I, I was working for um a company called world business lenders they they were founded by one of the founders of deutsche bank uh they're partnered with uh, axos bank like they're the fairly decent company we we're doing like small business like asset-based loans uh, it was a good job it was one of the most secure jobs I've, I've ever had it was like actually like salary plus commission instead of just commission um and so many people uh both like from from work and my friend group down in the city where I was and then even like my friends back home and my parents friends like everyone was like what are you doing like what what you're just like traveling and and you have no income and like you, you don't have any roots and any friends and it's this whole crazy thing I'm like I'm 22 years old this is the time when I'm supposed to be going around fucking up my financial life and then I can fix it when I get older or maybe this turns into something that actually fixes it by itself um which it seemed like might be a possibility a couple of times throughout this path. And um, yeah, like this is, this is what you have 20 year olds for mm -hmm. is to take the risks and do the crazy shit because 60 year olds are not going to do it most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. You're right with that. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's important. It needs to be done. It needs to be done by someone. We're trying to do it on a small scale in the UK and we just need to do it larger, large scale and, and we can democratize it by actually offering it to governance token holders and do it in quite a cool way. Um, very, you know, modern. It's, it's not been done before. We're, we're learning as we go. We will have to learn as we go. I'm sure we'll make mistakes um, and we'll learn from them and, and build on them um, as any, as any new sort of startup does. And especially when it's in a new world, um, you know, the, the web free, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, it, it, it's you know in the German the German model works very well. The community banking model in Germany, which you know was originally the UK model as well. You know they've got fifteen hundred uh, small local banks, uh, Sparkassen, um, which lend to small businesses in their area. They have their headquarters in that area, and they're very successful. Um, you know, in the last financial crisis, which was you know fourteen or so years ago now, um, not one of these small banks required taxpayer help, required bailing out at all. Um, you know, wow. of course, a few of them struggled at times, but they helped each other. You know, they came together and helped each other. Um, but they don't do any risky lending. You know, they don't do any risky business. Um, they don't do derivatives at all. Nothing like that. And they mm. only lend for small businesses that they know really well. And those small businesses during a tough time really need help as well. They need to be engaged with a bank and working with them. Um, so, you know, the actual model itself is so robust. It's been proven, you know, tested and proven in many economies. It's robust. And we're using that model. So we're not sort of scared about, you know, the actual model itself not working, the business model not working, you know, phase one bank as well, that's proprietary, but we're also not worried about that model. Um, it's actually very conservative. And that's to, you know, support the Dow in the early years, uh, while we then set up the, the phase two community banks. Um, so yeah, there's no reason we can't do it. Hell yeah. Just dream and uh, make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, and I, I'm also like a really big fan of of this project because you know the the banking monopolies are. Or, I mean, I say the word monopoly because it's basically that. I know that there is technically competition and there's multiple banks, but it's a monopoly, right? Um, they, it's it's such a drastic issue uh, that a lot of people either don't realize or don't um, aren't really that engaged in. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I feel like a lot of yeah. people kind of separate that um, mm -hmm. decentralization good mentality away from finance because they think that like the bigger the bank, the more uh, stable it is. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the better it is to have your money there or some kind of logic like that. And one of the problems I have most with like my friends and, and the, like the liberty movement in general is that it's always like government bad, government bad, government bad, when there's quite a few other things that like government's still bad most of the time, but like also big banks bad, also like gigantic corporations like Amazon and Walmart are bad. Like there's a lot of issues and a lot of, uh, a lot of times it's actually like the big banks and big businesses that are influencing the government to do the bad exactly. thing instead Nobody. of vice versa. Yeah. The government isn't controlling the country at all. Um, you know, I think quite a few people are waking up to that now. They're just <laughs> puppets on string really and um, they're yep. doing as they're told um a lot of people with a lot of money are the ones controlling what happens in each country and then lobbying for it and um and funding the government so yep. you're right on that but in terms of the you know the, the idea around the big banks more stable it's, it's just ridiculous um <laughs> you know small businesses um are very credit worthy in fact um mm -hmm. you get over collateralized you know the business much better you're much closer to them you're much closer to the collateral that you've got um, so actually, you know, they're, they're quite good to lend to. And you've got a small bank that isn't doing any risky lending. And in a time where things go, you know, really south, um, all of those risky positions that the big banks have suddenly blow up in their face. And they're suddenly mounting with loads of bad debts and mm -hmm. um, really like heavy losses. And that's when they need the help. You know, they need taxpayer bail or they need to do some shoddy stuff like, you know, breaking the, uh, you know, the rule around um, lending to someone to then reinvest in the bank, um, which boosts your capital for capital adequacy rules. Uh, you know, some banks did that as well, not to mention any names, of course. Um, but they did that in the financial crisis, which sometimes the regulators turned, a, you know, turned their face away from, sometimes 
they they looked and said, no, you can't do that and, and find them for it. Um, but big banks try and do that and they need the help. Small mm-hmm. banks, they don't. They, they can work together. If there's a few struggling, they can help each other out, but they're not doing anything that should, I would say should, um, you know, cause them any problems if the economy does turn south a little bit. Right. Yeah. And even those fines um, are, I feel like, like, how do you find someone that's doing, like, they're doing the wrong thing because they're broke. Fines mm-hmm. don't help that. Like, uh, they clearly, uh, all you're doing is encouraging them to do more shoddy things to try to make up that fine money on top of what they're already losing on the bad investments. Yeah. So, so fines won't, you know, they don't work. What you need is you need what Japan was using before, and they did it during the recession as well. And in fact, that's how they caused the recession, something called window guidance or macroprudential regulations, if you like, in Europe, which is when the central bank effectively tells the, the big banks and commercial banks exactly how much they can lend to each sector. And in Japan, it worked very well. And it's how they got miracle double digit GDP growth is the Bank of Japan, effectively, they actually had a window. Um, that's why it's called window guidance. <laughs> Um, a representative of a bank would walk up um, and Richard goes into this in much better detail than I will um, during, you know, in his documentary and in his book. But these bankers would walk up and they'd be told, okay, this is your ranking compared to other banks. So this is how much you can give out in loans. And if the banks didn't meet that quota, they would fall down the ranking. So therefore they would want to meet that quota and they'd do everything they can to, to meet their quota. But if they go over it, then, whoa, they won't get, you know, such a nice quota next time. They'll go down the ranking. So, and you can't go against the central bank at the end of the day because then they can impose certain restrictions on you, on the banks themselves. And you don't want to start annoying the central bank and just doing something that they say you shouldn't be doing. So you need to listen to them. You need to do as you're told. That's what you do to control the bank um, and to make sure that you don't have bank crisis is you get them, the bankers, and you say, look, we're not just going to give you at least do whatever you want. Because if you do that, they'll do everything they can to make as much money as they can. You know, <laughs> if you if you say, oh, you can do whatever you want, make as much as you want, they'll do that. And if that's risky lending, then so be it. That's what they'll be doing. But if you say to them, no, you can't do that. You can't lend for financial speculation. So for anyone unaware, um, Professor Werner proved that, well, his quantity theory of credit, if you like, that hasn't yet been disproven. Um, that shows that credit is created by the banks. And it's either created for real purposes like the real economy, um, which is good, or it's created for bad purposes like financial speculation or going into the asset market, which causes asset bubbles. So if the central bank uses their window guidance techniques to say to the banks, look, this is how much credit you can lend to each sector, they can control the ratio between the real credit creation and the financial credit creation. And then you don't get the bank crisis. So these bank crises are usually orchestrated by the central bank or it's just caused and they've ignored it and then when you have a bank crisis, it's actually very easy to get out of one as well. You know, a recession is very quick to get out of if it's done correctly. But normally the regulators will then tighten up and then say, oh, you've got to even protect yourselves more. You can't lend as much out now. And the banks will all come you know, come in and say, oh, we don't want to lend. We've, we've not got much. So we don't want to do any lending at all now because it's too risky. So the businesses, the good businesses, the real economy that really needs that credit isn't getting it because mm-hmm. the banks then can't either, they can't they either can't loan because of regulations like basal regulations or they just don't want to lend. So you really need to be on top of them and making sure they do as you're told. Uh, they do as they're told mm-hmm. and not just finding them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's basically the entire reason that my old company could exist because we were doing uh, like very high risk, um, high interest type loans to small businesses that couldn't get loans from a normal business. Pretty much everyone, almost every client that I had the entire time I was in finance had applied for a loan from, say, Chase Bank 
previously to coming and talking to me and either they um they needed the money faster because that process is between two and four months long usually um or they they got turned down because they needed um like they, the business owners need a 650 700 credit score or higher and you know the the business needs to be doing uh like six figures a year or more and mm-hmm. a lot of like small restaurants and stuff like that just don't have that and uh like a lot of the times my clients were people who like their fryer broke in the back of their restaurant and they need to buy a new one that's a seven thousand dollar piece yeah. of equipment and yeah like if they wait three months to get the chase loan for that they don't have yeah. french fries for the next three months it's just not a reality that they can live through um and so you know there, there's a lot of shitty business practices in the industry that i was in there's a lot of especially because most salespeople were uh are like ex- explicitly commission based and so you know the the more loans the more money and it's not really any skin off of their back it's not like if they default uh as long as it's past a certain time period if they default it doesn't hurt the salesman at all um but i actually used to make all of my clients like write out a return on investment for the money that we were going to give them like i needed them to to detail out to me how the money that i was going to give them would make them more money than they would end up paying back to me in the end and i would tell them to not take the loan if they couldn't do that and a bunch of times they would go take a similar loan from a different salesman um who is willing to do the shitty thing but i I'm also very proud to say that I've only had two defaults in my entire career. And one of them was a, was a deal. You're that I... two loans out. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And one of them was a deal that I barely even worked on. Uh, it was somebody else's who quit. And then uh, it just got put onto my desk. And all I did, I was, it was a 10 minute phone call and I closed the deal. Like I was just like the last nail in the coffin of that yeah. deal. I didn't know anything of what was going on. And I just, you know, pulled the trigger and, and closed the deal. And then they, they didn't even make their first payment. Like they defaulted in two weeks. Um, and, but yeah. And then I have, I had one other like actually legitimate default uh, where the guy's business uh, went under and like I was really sad, but of the couple hundred loans that I gave out, um, two defaults is pretty good, pretty good record. And especially when the industry average is about 30 percent, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's funny because, you know, this is one of the great things about Valhalla Network as well, because normally a crypto project, if you like, is it's 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 high risk um, or, you know, high return. Mm. And hire going into an escrow um, that we don't touch. It's there purely for equity purposes. Um, the whole business model has to be go, has to go through the regulators. Uh, we have to have the bankers in charge uh, interviewed, made sure that they are capable of pulling it off. Um, it goes through a very rigorous process to make sure that we're not going to fail and we're not going to go bust. At least that's what they're supposed to be doing. The regulators, um, and then we model. You know, we we go to regulators say, look, the businesses we're focusing on are going to have maybe an LGD, sorry, not an LGD a default rate, let's say below three percent or something, or below two percent, and that's probably conservative. Um, and then say, but out of that, the LGD is going to be very low because we're over collateralized. Um, so, so that's loss given default is going to be quite low. So. You go to them with this model, they review everything you've done, they review your business model, everything you looked at, your market demand, et cetera. 
if they don't think that you can do it or they don't think that you're telling the truth or you know that you're going to fail they won't give you the license they won't give you that bank license so the bank licenses that we're getting they carry a lot of power with them and a lot of responsibility and that is what you know Valhalla is all about is getting all these bank licenses going with the banks which have all that power to then create money for the you know for the public good and for the small businesses um but yeah <laughs> it's it's a cool one it's a cool one yeah, I'm I'm very excited about this. Uh, I think you may you make very good points about um, how much better uh, business practices are if you actually know the people that you're dealing with, and yeah. I I feel like that's a that's a an across the board kind of rule that uh, you know we're basically the whole theme of this show is, has been just decentralization, and uh, yeah. I I I personally believe that the many many areas of centralization that we've seen whether that's again like amazon and walmart or uh, even even just like other silly industries that you wouldn't think would get monopolized like gas stations and things like that like i i traveling across the country i've been into plenty of towns where where there's literally a monopoly on gas station like there's there's only 7-elevens in this whole town or something like that and it's yeah. it's just a weird concept and and again, you know, you don't know the owner of 7-Eleven. No one, like obviously yeah, some people yeah. do, but no one knows the owners of these major, major, huge corporations. The owners don't actually know their customers and therefore don't actually care about their feelings or yeah. their lives in any way, shape or form. And when you don't know the people that you're dealing with, it just, you have so much less of an incentive to do the right thing. Yep. And talking about that, so in a normal business, the owners are the ones making the business practices and saying what they're going to be doing, the rates they're charging, etc. In our case, Valhalla Network can be the owner, but because we're a bank, we're not the ones making the decisions. It's the local bankers in the area who are managing the bank. They're the ones who know the businesses in the area. They're the ones who decide on on the you know the, the rates that they're charging, the rates um, that they're getting out on the loans, etc. That they're offering on deposits. They're the ones who do all that. Valhalla Network doesn't. Because mm. one, we're not allowed to by regulations. We're not allowed to get involved in all that. But two, you wouldn't want us to be because then you don't know the people who are making all those decisions. You know, then you take away, you know, okay, yes, we have a decentralized governance framework, but you don't want to decentralize the governance framework of a bank so much because then um, you don't know all those people that you're working with. You don't know the businesses in the area and you can't, you can't possibly manage a bank like that. You have to have local bankers in the area that can visit the small businesses that they're lending to. They can get to know them. And then they can do ethical practices to make sure that those businesses are supported. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, we talk about this a lot, at least uh, on the show and, and in the movement, uh, as far as government goes. Of you know, a large. Uh, I, I say a lot that there there's no way that any one person can make the correct decisions for 330 million people. Like no person is going mm -hmm. to actually be a good American president. Like it's just not possible. Um, which is why I support. Just uh, disbanding the federal government and, <laughs> and plenty of other anarchist things, but uh, but yeah, I I I'm of the opinion that the more that we just decentralize uh, the stuff that we're actually involved in, because let's be real, the government actually influences a very small percentage of your life. Uh, mm -hmm. It's mostly your employer, the people that you do business with, your bank, your uh, your well, school, that kind of stuff. Now they now they impact it more, right? I mean, yeah. Now now you. I, I literally got kicked out of a Subway sandwiches the other day because I couldn't because I didn't have a mask with me. I'm like, I almost got thrown off a train earlier in the week for not having a mask. 
So, you know, I, I feel the pain. Mm. I feel the pain. <laughs> People react very oddly now compared to five years ago. But yeah, it's definitely, governments definitely impact your life more now than they, than they should. Mm -hmm. um, it should be a healthy balance, like you said, where it's your employer, your school, um, your children, your parents, etc. They all impact. Now it's heavily the government, which is scary. Mm -hmm. But we could even back to the point you made a few minutes ago, we could even say that the the stuff that we're thinking about right now when it comes to like the COVID regime and other things like that mostly wasn't the government's idea and probably influenced more heavily by big pharma and, and big banking mm -hmm. and some of these other uh, large business structures. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At least. Uh, sorry, what was that? I was just going to say, you know, to mention them, uh, but not going into too much detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, that, that, that'd be a whole other episode. Um, exactly, yeah. I'd actually, I would very much love to, I've been trying to stay mostly off of that topic from any kind of like a legitimate scientific basis because I'm not a scientist. Uh, mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I'll never say, don't take the vaccine, it's dangerous. Um, please don't remove my video, YouTube. That was sarcasm. Um, uh, so like, I've, I've never said that on the show and I, I obviously won't also encourage people to take it. Like, I'm not a doctor, but I would really love to finally, now that I think a lot more of the science is, is settled, I'll, I'll put that in air quotes. Um, I would love to actually get into it a little bit more because we have a lot of information on it. Yeah, you know, Joe Rogan has he has some good guests on which discuss it and and he openly criticizes a lot of what's going on. And luckily he's so large and such a good following that it's very difficult to cancel Joe Rogan and mm -hmm. just simply mute him. Um yep. <laughs> luckily he's he's that big and he's doing the right thing of, of getting these people on and then really questioning the narrative. Um yep. which is it's good and I'm a big supporter of him. But yeah, it's just it's important to, you know, to to really highlight that. What we're doing is, is one bank doesn't influence another bank. Um, so although the ownership might be the same and then the ownership is decentralized, you know, we're democratizing finance, we're giving the average person, you know, in a completely different country access to these central bank credit lines. Um, and we're giving them, you know, the opportunity to decide what happens to the cash flow that comes in and where does Valhalla network move to? Where do we focus on? Um, and, you know, do we do stuff in the DAO as well, like charitable stuff? Because obviously every bank is partly owned as well. We're not going to... We haven't decided exactly yet on, on the percentages for phase two, but it's going to be partly owned by the foundation, the charity foundation as well. So in all those banks that we set up, um, we can reinvest in the local area. Um, but perhaps the DAO will want to do something as well. That's a very heavy charity, um, charity focused. So not only are we doing that, we've got the same sort of ownership, if you like, ownership structure for each bank. Bank A can't influence bank B, apart from the interbank market. Um, but, you know, the, the CEO of one bank doesn't make the decisions for the, for the other bank and they just make it for their area, their one bank. And that's mm -hmm. the decentralized banking approach. Man, I had I had a question and then you, and then you kept talking and I was listening and the question <laughs> slipped out the back of my head. Um, oh, I remember. Uh, how do you how do you feel about some of these? Um, like uh, completely online banks that have been starting up. I've I've looked into a few of those which just don't have brick and mortars, which ends up being able to drop their overhead cost a lot and kind of be a lot less fee heavy. Uh, yep. how do, what do you feel about those? They aren't supporting the businesses. They're not supporting small businesses that they need to be supported. We did a recent survey um, of over 100 participants, um, small business owners, in the local like in the area that we were looking at um 
you know, gave their answers. And what we found is that the majority want face-to-face traditional banking, which requires brick and mortar. You need to have some sort of headquarters that the customer can come into. They can see the same sort of people. They see familiar faces. If they need to complain, they know how to complain. If they need to sit down and talk through with someone how to do an application, for example, they can do that, you know, and it's a friendly space that they can do. Instead of just having to call up a helpline and just go, you know, A, B, T, or one, two, three, et cetera, and just go through a note. And I was actually doing that earlier with Lloyd's and I just went in circles. Um, mm-hmm. And it was very frustrating. Um, and all doing it online where some people won't really be, you know, proficient with their um, computer or know exactly how to do it. Um, and the live chat function and all that's still very new and not everyone is comfortable with it. So being able to have a brick and mortar available in the area is really important for those businesses because a lot of small business owners, they're not interested in in doing everything online. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's, it's funny that over 90% of the participants of our survey would strongly consider switching to a community bank if it was to set up. That's how much they really want a new bank that is our structure coming into the area. Um, because it's just, you know, like 60%, over 60% say that they really struggle to get any financing from their current provider. So they do need a a local bank with headquarters for that face-to-face banking for them to come in and say what they need. We can understand it and then we can offer them solutions uh, that will help them most and help them grow. And then through that, you grow the economy, um, the council's happy, they get more tax, um, and they get higher employment because obviously, well, I say obviously, um, I shouldn't say obviously, but small businesses are the biggest employer as well. So in the UK, I think it's like two thirds or 80% of of, um, people are employed by small businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, So you do need to to fund them, whereas the big banks, they aren't. So you need those small businesses to, to, uh, small banks to lend to small businesses so that they can grow. And then per one pound or $1 um, lent to a small business, um, the impact on, on, employment and job growth is much larger than if you gave the same loan to a big business. So therefore you should be focusing on, on those loans to small businesses because it doesn't require as much to get that job growth. Yeah. A hundred percent agreed. Uh, I actually, um, I tried to go through the process because, so I'll, I'll say, um, that I'm, I'm a fan of the, the online only, uh, idea because, uh, mostly, mostly just the fees. That's the thing that pisses me off more than anything else. Like I've said, my, my finances have been kind of hit or miss. So, uh, the, the idea of like a $35 overdraft fee because yeah. I accidentally <laughs> spent a dollar too much and it didn't decline correctly because uh, the tip from last night didn't come into the or come out of my account yet or whatever reason. Um, but I, I try to go through the process of setting up an account um, with Axos Bank, uh, mostly because, you know, I, I already kind of sort of knew knew what they were because they were a partner of my old company. And uh, I never actually got an account because it, it was it was just like emailing back and forth for a little yeah. while and they needed paperwork that I didn't know what they were asking for. And I sent them a bunch of paperwork and then they were like, nope, we still need paperwork. Um, and they were basically asking for what I thought that I had already given them. And then I um, I went on a on a job and was was gone for about a month and a half and kind of forgot that this was a thing that I was working on. And uh, the application timed out. Like they, I, ha- I would have to like start back from scratch if I wanted to. And I just didn't. I was like, never mind. I'll, I'll work on this later. I have other stuff to, to do right now. Uh, 
and it just kind of fizzled and I didn't ever actually open an account because of exactly what you were talking about. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm 24. I turn 25 next week. Um, I, I'm pretty proficient with online stuff and like using my phone and, and app based technology. And even I couldn't do it right. So I wouldn't couldn't imagine like some of the clients that I used to work with these like 65 year old, 70 year old, like owners of trucking companies or, or small restaurants or something like that. They they struggled with just emailing me while we were still on the phone with each other. So I couldn't imagine them trying to go through this process just entirely yeah. online. Uh, yeah, 100%. I agree. I think how much easier it would have been and much time saver if you just it probably would have been two trips maximum. First one to the bank for you to sit down and discuss how you're opening the bank account, what paperwork you need to provide. And then the second time, you, you know, you can ask for questions of exactly what paperwork do you mean? I don't understand you. And you can get that answer. And then the second trip is you bring everything with you and you can actually do it. You know, it, it's just, it's a lot easier. And if you haven't got that option, you are going to, you know, you're going to provide a lower quality of service and um, for small businesses. And they're not, you, you don't have a, you know, you don't have the same trust there. Like I said, about how small businesses and the small banks, they need to know each other. They need to trust each other. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that local, um, you know, sort of brick and mortar there for customers to come in and actually see you, and you to get to know them, it's really difficult to, to be able to offer them the solutions that they actually need. You can just see on the screen and say, okay, well, this, this solution might work for you. You know, do you need an overdraft or whatever? But unless you sit down and you could start back and forth asking them questions and really getting into detail and getting to know their business, that's the only way you can actually make sure that the solutions you're offering are the ones that they most need. Definitely. Um... Yeah, I, I, uh, I personally, I, I do still have a singular like normal bank account, or it's, it's with a credit union, not a bank. Uh, but I've, I've actually been operating the majority of my finances, uh, for about three, almost four years now, um, off of Cash App. Because <laughs> um, uh, a few years back, they partnered with uh, Sutton Bank, and so now there's like actually an account attached to your. Uh, account that you can like has an account number and a routing number so i can get my direct deposit sent to my cash app i can uh i have like the actual card um actually i'm a fan of this one because it glows in the dark and it has like a flame on it and it's fun um and so basically everything that i would need for for a personal bank uh i can do through through cash app but yeah once one especially when you start getting into uh business banking is a whole other animal that i don't think um i don't even think cash app touches and i don't think they ever would want to uh because it's it's not you have to you know this is another thing about community banks is if you get community bankers to run them they know how to manage these small businesses. They know how to get close to them. They know how to properly ensure that the collateral that they're, you know, that they're valuing and that they've got of the system is correct. You know, they've dealt with these businesses before. They know how to offer these solutions. You can't just take a big business banker and stick it in a small bank and say, please, can you do, you know, small business um, banking? It just doesn't work. So, yeah, you do also need the expertise there um, to make sure. And, you know, Germany is a especially hot spot for that because they've been doing it uh, for, for many years and, and they've been doing it very well. Um, and obviously Richard is, is from Germany. Um, so Werner, um, he's obviously from Germany as well. Um, so he's very familiar with it, which is why he's trying to implement it in the UK. Now we're trying to implement it on a much larger scale. Nice. So while you guys are, uh, are building this up, what can other people do to either prepare themselves for when this, uh, launches or help get it off the ground or, um, you know, 
just be more financially literate uh, or help spread that part of your mission? How, how can people help? Uh, so it's quite difficult. In you know, the local first mission, it's, it's a smaller mission. Um, in terms of helping that, we need um, sort of connections into councils and, and really getting involved in that aspect and then making sure you, you one, you support the community banking initiative, really support it, and you want it in the area, and then and trying to um, get the mission sort of visible to your local either MPs or um, your councillors. That's the key f thing for local first. In terms of Valhalla, um, that is we just need to go through the fundraising rounds and get everything set up. You know, we've got a pre-sale in the next few weeks, um, which is it's you know it's at the it's a discounted pre-sale before the private raise. That's the first um, round that we're doing, which is 600K. And then the private raise of 20 million in four rounds of 5 million. Um, so that will start in sort of Q1 uh, 2022. Um, and then after that, pretty much it's, it's banking and tech roadmaps running alongside each other. And it's not until we get to the public raise uh, where things will, will really um, kick into gear and start speeding up as well. Um, but yeah, so it's a little bit it's a little bit trickier when it comes to helping on on Valhalla. Um, it's more with the raising, um, as you can imagine with any sort of startup. It's, it's getting that money in the door and then being able to approach regulators because you need a large amount of money to approach the regulators um, to be able to say, look, most of that's not even being touched. It's in an escrow account. We're not touching it. We're not burning it. It's just for the equity purposes. And then the regulators take you seriously and they can say, okay, you've got the money, but you need to start the bank up. Let's have a look at what you're actually doing. Let's have a look at your bank license application, which is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages um, of work. Um, and, you know, that's what we've, we've done. We've, we know how to do it. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's sort of the two main ways to, to help out if anyone's interested or get involved if anyone's interested. Awesome. And of course, um, helping people educate people on, on financial yeah. literacy is always a good mission. Um, cause yeah, I, to go back to almost the first conversation, like, I really can't believe how, how much that got stripped out of our education system. And I, at this point I might be too much of a, uh, conspiracy theorist, but I, I, tend to believe that that was on purpose uh, <laughs> because I, I don't I can't think of any logical reason why something simple like banking and accounting would be taken out of a high school curriculum when it was there for so long. Um, like my parents learned how to balance a, a budget and a checkbook in school. And most people my age don't even know what a checkbook is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or you know they think that balancing it would be like like trying to like do that with the actual <laughs> physical checkbook or something um yeah in terms of the education side um you know it's it, it's something that i really want to get around to in the first quarter of next year as well um maybe going into the second quarter obviously i was in a call with you the other day um and and discussing with our friends who have experience in in sort of teaching um finance and and who have a interest in, in promoting financial education as well and more um, real world um, education materials. Um, so it's really, if anyone wants to get involved in that, then it would have to just be like, contact me and, you know, feel free to discuss it. And, and if you want to sort of do anything to get involved, please do. Um, but it's not going to be something really on my agenda until at least sort of March, April time next year, just because of the amount of work I've got on um, <clears throat> at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't solve all the problems, Ollie. Like, you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta pick a couple and then, uh, 
yeah, that's that's one of the struggles that I've been having uh, is kind of like picking picking the problems that I actually want to get involved in because there's there's a lot of them. And for yeah. quite some time, I was kind of in like uh, a broad either just like campaigning or something like that. So I get to kind of like touch a lot of different things. Uh, but I'm, I'm starting to lose faith in electoralism as a whole. And so I'm trying to get more into uh, a more direct route to, to helping people. And there's just, mm. you know, I could spend the entire rest of my life trying to end the war on drugs in America and probably still die with some of them still criminalized. Um, or I could spend my entire life trying to, you know, help feed homeless people and there would still be homeless people starving by the time I'm done. Mm. Uh, so yeah trying to like pick exactly the things that i care the most about uh is is the struggle that i'm going through right now uh that's that's the mission for 22 is like uh touch a bunch of those things and figure out which one i i feel the most strongly about because yeah. there are a lot of problems to fix Some, and if you can solve a problem in one area and it's replicable in others that's where it gets fun so like the financial education piece it's you do it once right and although you might have to update it time and time again you can then bring it in in every area, every community bank can offer it. Um, mm -hmm. So any solution like that is always good as well. Once you've done it right once, it can be used over and over again. Yeah. But yeah, when you have to do it, you know, when it's a lot of work and you're doing it over and over again, but from the start, that's when it can be very difficult for you. Um, for sure. And we won't even get talking about war on drugs because although it's a very interesting <laughs> one, it will way take us all the time as I'm, I'd love to have that debate with you and, and find out what your views are understand your views and just discuss that and how it will work um because i've got my views on it and and you know they're they're in between and it would be great to chat with you more about that and, and find out what your views are and, and you know how it'd go around that uh, yeah. but that's one for another time i'm sure <laughs> for sure i would love to have that conversation um yeah i uh i i agree that the the trying to find something that's that's the most replicable uh is kind of has been kind of on my mind and yep. And the decentralization of education is another kind of big thing that I care about because uh, like so many of my friends got caught up in the, the like you have to go to college and get a degree thing. And now they have $150,000 of debt and a useless degree. Yeah. And uh, they, they probably could have um, learned everything that they know now by YouTube videos. YouTube, yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> sort of like that, I can imagine. Um... Yeah, I, I think you're right. And in fact, Polygon are doing a very interesting um, mm. piece on, on a decentralized university. Um, so like a DAO university, um, which is interesting. And, and in fact, we're talking about it and approaching Richard for that as well. Um, so I'm aware Polygon have launched something like that or are looking to really you know get that going uh, for a decentralized education piece. And it's something that maybe Valhalla will look at in the future as well, depending on what the governance holders you know token holders want to do um i've got my sort of thought process of every sort of public good thing we can do and all the reforms that we can try and do and, and lobbying and all that um and all great missions but at the end of the day i won't be making the one uh, i won't be the one making the decisions it'll be the governance token holders and then voting on it and deciding where valhalla you know moves in the future we can give it the the stepping stones and we can sort of build it up so it's ready to go and the structure's there and it's, it's got sustainability and it's not going to crash and we've got um, good governance. So as you'll see, the governance framework for Valhalla, it's actually very similar like to a bank governance. It's heavily got a lot of committees involved. There's a lot of transparency. There's a lot of people making decisions um, to get it up and running and to get it, you know, successful. Um, but then it's not going to be for me. You know, it's, it's the governance token holders. I'll be still obviously involved 
and I'll be overseeing and everything, but I'm not going to be the one making all the decisions. That was actually uh, going to be basically my, la- my last question for you is how, because I, I feel like it's, it's rare and extremely kind of a noble mindset to be in of building something like this that you're then going to hand off control of. And you know that going in mm-hmm. that you're, you're going to do all of this work and then maybe the governance token holders don't care about any of the things that you care about and all the money goes into other awesome things for sure, but like not the thing that, that you maybe wanted. How's, how's that mindset? So with DAOs, obviously, when you set up a DAO, your mindset is you are building something that's going to be decentralized and decentralized mm-hmm. ownership of the DAO. That's what you want. Um, so if you don't want that, you shouldn't be building a DAO in the first place. <laughs> right. um, but it's, you know, you don't lose all control. You have a big responsibility. People see you, you know, you're still the CEO, if you like, of it. You're still sort of senior contributor of it. You've still got a very important responsibility and role and making sure that um, what the governance token holders want, you deliver. Um, and you you take their interests and you make sure their interests are, are kept to the heart of a project. So you've still got a big responsibility. You're just mm-hmm. not one making a decision, if you like. That's actually sort of like a relief. You know, it's a weight off your shoulders because <laughs> you're not the one having to make all the decisions. Um, mm-hmm. It's a voting process. It's democratic, if you like. Um, but, you know, there's always fail safe. So what can't happen is, is you know, one big bank wants to buy up everything, all the tokens, and then just shut down the whole network. That can't happen. There's always going to be fail safe so that no one person can just destroy everything that we've built over like a 10-year period, if you like, when we've got maybe a thousand banks in the network and the market cap is, you know, I don't know, 100 billion or something because we've got that many banks or you know whatever not one person can come in and just buy everything and say right let's shut everything down um or you know it's, it won't be possible um we'll build that in to make sure that the the token holders or at least the project is protected uh for the long for the long term that makes sense yeah i can <laughs> i can relate with the the relief part um i I think uh, decision fatigue is a real thing that a mm. lot of people aren't aware of, of just, you know, when you're, you're in that kind of like a CEO role and, or even, you know, for me on like uh, as a campaign manager and things like that, it's like so many tiny little decisions you have to make throughout That's, the day. Yeah. And it's too much. Like, I I joke I was joking with my parents the other night of like that's why most CEOs are are subs sexually because it's just like nope like somebody else make all the decisions for the next x amount of time like I just want to check out and be told what to do because I don't want to make any more decisions tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the beauty of DAOs, I guess, is that that's taken off you. Now, of course, it takes a few years. It's going to be a few years for so the. Treasury is protected for a multi-sig to start with, um, where I think it's seven or eight um, signatures, and we'll have to have uh, like five of them or six of them. I can't remember. I'll have to check the white paper and how we've laid it out. But to sign it off so that funds can't just be moved from the DAO's account to Oliver Studd's personal account, you know, to protect it like that and protect the token holders, it's going to be a multi-sig. But over time, that also... And, you know, that carries a lot of responsibility as well because you've got to make sure you're there, you're able to sign stuff off so that the, the government token holders, their dreams are, can happen. But over time, we'll eventually move that and migrate it to the government's token holders as well so that they control the treasury and their votes can control the treasury as well. We just got to make sure we do that in a, in a slow and steady way so that everyone's protected um, and things don't go wrong. Um, if you try and rush it, things will go wrong. So we're, luckily, we've got a nice long roadmap, especially on the tech side, because the banking stuff, it takes a while to get going. You know, we've got to approach regulators. We've got to make sure we do everything right. So the tech roadmap is nice and long so that, you know, the guys can look over everything multiple times, can really think about it and make sure 
take suggestions on board and and do things in a correct way. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see how this all uh, unfolds and, and how this works. Uh, I, I think you guys are, are tackling one of the biggest problems we're facing as a, as a global society right now. Uh, and that's, that's really exciting. Um, but before we wrap up, uh, tell people how they can find you, find out more about uh, Valhalla or, or Community First or uh, Professor Werner or yep. all the other things. Um, so, yeah, so Richard has uh, a Twitter as well. So it's Scientific Econ or Professor Werner. Um, either of them will eventually take you to him. Um, our local first is, you just search local first. Um, it's local hyphen first, I think, dot org um, is the address. But, you know, that's just reach out to, to myself uh, for anything local first related is always is always good. And then, yeah, Valhalla is ValhallaNetwork.io. Um, so everything that we're trying to do is on there at the moment. The landing page, the team information, the white papers available on there for anyone to check out. Um, and then I can be contacted either on Telegram. Um, I think it's the Stud Maestro, um, or on on Twitter at Stud Oliver, um, and then obviously Valhalla Dow has its own sort of official page that we use for announcements. Awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm always happy. You know, like we've got a YouTube channel as well as well, Werner Economics, and my contact details are on there as well. My local first one. So anyone who ever wants to get in touch, either to have a chat to discuss what we're up to and to offer any help and, and want to get involved, always happy to you know to meet new people and and, and talk. <laughs> Awesome. And who wouldn't want to get involved with a stud like you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had to make the joke at least once in the episode. I've been wondering that uh, for a long time. Like, for years I've been wondering that. <laughs> uh, well, Oliver, thank you so much for coming on. This was this was really awesome. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for your time, David. All the best. Have a good, well, good rest of your evening. <laughs> yeah, you as well. Uh, guys, thank you so much for watching. Um, definitely go follow uh, Oliver and Valhalla and keep in touch and and follow this because i like i said i think this is going to be really awesome uh we'll be back here tomorrow night at the normal time 9 p.m with olivia rondow um thanks for watching guys oliver cheers. thanks again cheers All right. shut up and sit down